0: Pre-med year, session number 329. Hello, and welcome to the pre-med years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to the pre-med years. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, as I mentioned earlier, and I am excited to be here to talk to you about being a pre-med and what that journey is like. That's what I do day in and day out here at the MedEd Media Podcasting Network. If you are new to us, new to this podcast, go check out mededmedia.com. That's M-E-D-E-D, media.com. And look at all the podcasts that we have to offer. If you haven't taken the MCAT yet, we have two specific podcasts for you just for the MCAT, both the MCAT podcast and the MCAT cars podcast. If you're looking at some motivation about different specialties out there, we have specialty stories. If you're a non-traditional student, we have the old pre-meds podcast and so much more. Again, that's mededmedia.com. This week, I have a different episode for you. As I'm recording this, it's the beginning-ish of March and I just got back from the AMSA convention, the 2019 AMSA convention, where I was able to speak to an awesome crowd of pre-med students about being pre-med and the journey to medical school. The title of the talk was Pre-Med 101 and I used that time to really just encourage students to be themselves themselves that you don't have to be perfect. I busted a bunch of of pre-med myths and so much more. And so I was able to record that session. And so the sound will be a little bit different than what you're used to if you're used to listening to this podcast, but hopefully it is still good for you to listen to. I know there's a lot of great advice in here. I got a ton of great feedback after the talk. So hopefully this one will give you a little bit of motivation to continue waking up every day, happy to be a pre-med and encouraged and motivated to continue on to medical school and beyond. Learn how to put your best foot forward, how to consider a variety of angles, and how to anticipate what will happen during the crucial conversations that stand between you and medical school. Explore how you will be evaluated, what interviewers expect, and what you can do to make sure you already stand out. So we have the famous and the best doctor in the world, Dr. <laughs> Greg. Give it up, guys. Woo! Thanks, buddy. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning. How many of you are really cold because you're from somewhere warm? warm? A lot of you. Wow. Who came the furthest? Farthest. Hawaii? Hawaii? Wow. Yeah. Just for me? <laughs> Thank you. How many people have heard of me and my podcast? Wow, that sucks. <laughs> I thought I was more special than that. Well, good. That means I have a lot more people to be able to listen to the podcast. So, if you want to record, record. I don't care. I don't have any secrets. I'm not going to tell you anything secret. So, if you want to listen, if you want to record, uh, rather, record away. Who here is applying to medical school this coming June? May, June, okay. Next year? Two years? Four years? Three years? Anybody else? All right. I miss anybody. Not applying to medical school and just wants to hang out with me. <laughs> Craig, where are you? Right, there's one person back there. There you are. All right. <laughs> How many people have been told in your freshman chemistry class, biology class, look to your left, look to your right, only one of you can be a doctor? How awesome is that? If freshman on campus... Raring to go, ready to learn. I'm gonna be a doctor. I'm gonna go to medical school. I'm gonna make my family proud. And here's this professor saying, I can't do it. Or if I can, then that person sitting next to me on either side, I'm gonna have to beat them up to get there. I want to take my time today to talk about how that's a bunch of baloney that all of you can get into medical school. If you put in the work, even if you fail a class, even if you struggle with the MCAT, or when you struggle with the MCAT, because the MCAT sucks. (laughs) Who's taking the MCAT? Sucks, right? Yeah, it's not fun. Not fun. So, let's start off with some common myths about going to medical school. Mid number one, I mentioned a little bit already. You can fail a class and still get into medical school. You don't have to be perfect to get accepted to medical school. I hear from way too many students, or non students at the point they're contacting me, who didn't do well in one class, organic chemistry typically. <laughs> and Either themselves thought, or they were told by an advisor, you should pick a different career. If you can't handle organic chemistry, if you got a C in organic chemistry, then medical school is not right for you. Has anybody had a friend who's like, oh yeah, that happened to my friend. That happened to me. sucks. And it's not true. Not true at all. I was going to have somebody on my podcast, the pre-med years, who had 16 Fs in her undergrad. Five withdrawals, I think. More Fs than withdrawals. It's not very good. Who got into medical school this year. She was going to come on the podcast, but then had some other personal issues and didn't want to, to come out public with it. But it's still something that I think can encourage all of you to think that there's this woman out there who had 16 Fs and still got into medical school. Was it Harvard? No. Does it matter? Nope. Not at all. Now, there are some of you who are like, Harvard or bust. That's all. (laughs) Harvard or bust. I got an email this morning from a student who got into Harvard, WashU, and Vandy. Now she's freaking out. And USIS, the military medical school. She's freaking out. Doesn't know... Which one to go to? Oh, and UVA. And she's like, I I don't know which one to go to, right? So no matter where you are, 16 Fs, getting into one school, amazing grades, amazing stats, getting into five amazing schools, there's still struggles for everybody. It's all relative. So if you are going through this process and you have a terrible semester, if you have a terrible year, if this is what you want to do, fix it, move forward, course correct, as I I like to talk about, and figure out how to improve the next semester, the next class, the next year. It may mean for some of you that you have to take a little bit of extra time. You may have to do what's called a post After you graduate, you take more classes. You may have to do that. And again, if that's what you need to do to fulfill this dream of becoming a physician, to enter a career that most physicians are burnt out of, then that's what you need to do. Being a doctor is hard. Being a pre-med's hard. Being a medical student's hard. Every step along this journey is really hard. But it's rewarding if this is what you know you're supposed to be doing. So, you don't have to be perfect, okay? Who here thinks that there's a checklist to get into medical school? I gotta have good grades, I gotta have a good MCAT score, I gotta have shadowing, I gotta have volunteering, I gotta, 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 or else I'm not gonna get in. Oh yeah, (laughs) oh yeah. It's true, but it's not. One of the biggest questions I always get is, Dr. Gray, do you have to do research to get into medical school? No, you don't. But when you look at the stats, school's, put out information that shows that it's like 90 plus percent of students do research and only 70 percent do clinical experience. Like, how does that work? You want to be a doctor and you're not getting clinical experience, but you're doing research. Well, it's because you're checking boxes and doing all this stuff. And it's all self-reported data. So that's not the best data. You don't have to do research. Here are things that you do have to do. You have to prove to yourself that you want to be around sick people. You want to be around somebody who's going to poop on you, pee on you, puke on you, spray whatever bodily fluids at you from whatever orifices they have that they came out with or that we created as surgeons and doctors. Taking care of your grandma Gertrude is fun. It's endearing. It's what you do. She's family. Taking care of someone else's grandma Gertrude when the family's yelling at you, mad at you, Not so much fun. And so, if you are going through this process because Grey's Anatomy is awesome, and you want to be McDreamy, (laughs) or Meredith, my name, Dr. Grey, my wife, also a physician we met in medical school, (laughs) she's like, I get asked all the time, are you related to Meredith? She's like, you know that's fake, right? (laughs) That's a TV show. That's kind of a fun name. What you have to do through this process is not check off all the boxes. You have to prove to yourself that this is what you want to do. And to do that, yes, you need shadowing. Because you need to experience what a day in the life of a physician is. Anybody in healthcare now? Nurses? PAs, NPs, get asked all the time, I'm a nurse, do I have to shadow? Yes, yes you do. But I work side by side with doctors all day long. Yes, you work side by side with them in that one setting. Guess what they're doing when they're leaving that setting? They're on the phone, they're at the computer, they're arguing with insurance companies. Are you going to enjoy doing that? There was a study out of Hopkins, I think, looking at resident hours How much time residents spent with patients? What percentage of time do you think residents spent with patients in the hospital? 15, 20, 90. Oh, Oh. so sweet. I think it was 11. 11%. It's disgusting. What are they doing? Well, they're charting writing notes upon notes upon notes upon notes. They're talking to other physicians, doing doctor things, right? Talking to other physicians, talking to physical therapists and occupational therapists and social workers and going to meetings and and grand rounds that that residents have to go to. So a lot of it is interesting, fun stuff, but only 11% was direct patient care. And so shadowing, in a variety of settings, in the hospital, and an outpatient setting, will help you experience what the physicians are doing day in and day out. It's not all glamorous. It's not saving lives all day long. CPR all day long. Being thanked all day long. You know how many times I read in a personal statement, oh, it's just so amazing, the patients thank the doctor and I want to do that too. <laughs> You're in for a rude awakening when the majority of patients out there are annoyed by you, are mad at you, resent you because they think it's you that's causing health insurance prices to skyrocket. When in actuality, the reimbursement rates for doctors are going down, so doctors are getting paid less. So we have to do more to get paid the same amount. And it's all our fault. And so, what may have been in the past where doctors were put up on a pedestal, is not true anymore. Being a physician is an amazing career. But I don't want you to go into this thinking that it's more glamorous than what it is. We have too many physicians who come out of training burnt out because they thought it was going to be different than what it is. And I hate sugarcoating things. I want you to understand that it's not all glamorous. So you need to go out and shadow. You need to understand what that life is like, what you're going to be doing day in and day out. So yes, check that box off. Shadowing is different than clinical experience. Shadowing, you're literally, in the majority of cases, it's a very passive experience. You're there following the physician around, listening, observing, not interacting, It's very different when you're the one interacting with the patient. And so clinical experience, you need to be interacting with the patient, interacting with Grandma Gertrude. You need to be close enough to smell the patient. It's a saying that I heard a a Hopkins advisor, admissions committee member say at a conference a long time ago, and I stole it from him, so it's mine now. Close enough to smell the patient. All right, some patients you can smell from pretty far away. Who smelled C. diff before? Yeah, that one doesn't leave the nose for a while. You have to interact with the patient. You have to be there, support them, care for them, hold their hand. Whatever you're doing in that situation. Being in the hospital isn't necessarily clinical experience. I had a student write in their application. I was a, a janitor, environmental engineer, whatever they're called now. In the hospital, it's clinical experience. No, sorry, dude. Just because you're mopping the floors in a hospital, it's not clinical experience. ER volunteering, it's a very common place for a lot of pre-meds to volunteer. If you're only stocking shelves, putting towels in the warmers, whatever you guys are doing as ER volunteers, that's not clinical experience. You need to be interacting with patients interacting with their families. You need to understand what it's like to have somebody relying on you for support. At that point, it's it's really only moral support. But you need to be in that situation to understand if you like it. And if you don't, that's okay. Now is the time to figure out that this is not what you thought it was. Don't push through and go, well, I don't like this part, but I kind of like every other part so far, so I'll keep going. I've already told my mom, my dad, I'm going to be a doctor, and so I can't, I can't give up on my dreams. I'll disappoint them. If you have any doubt in your mind that this is what you're supposed to be doing, slow down and figure it out. It's okay. You don't have to be the student who goes to undergrad from high school, finishes undergrad in four years, applies between your junior and senior year and starts medical school right after. Non-traditional is the new traditional. The majority of students now are taking gap years. They're figuring out if this is what they want. They're taking the time to get more experience. Yeah, sometimes it's to fluff up their application a little bit. Sometimes it's, it's to be done with classes so they can take the MCAT without any of the other responsibilities but a lot of times it's because they still want more information. They still want more knowledge to see if this is what they're supposed to be doing. So take that time, check that box, get the clinical experience. Research, everybody thinks you have to have research. That's another box you have to check. You don't, easy as that. Should you try it? Sure, see if you like it. I hated research. So I didn't do much of it. I went to undergrad, just a little bit of backstory about me. I went to undergrad, University of Florida. I started undergrad knowing I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. I played baseball growing up, hurt my shoulder, went to physical therapy. I was like, oh, this is cool. i want to be a physical therapist. I'm going to help people get back to the sport they love. Shattered a physical therapist for a while. It was okay. And then I dissected a cat in high school. And I was sold. I want to cut people for a living. (laughs) One of my favorite shows, Dexter. Now you know why. (laughs) And so I married the two together. I said, oh, physical therapy, cutting people, orthopedic surgery, done. Right? I wanted to be an orthopod. Went to University of Florida. Any gators in the house? None? That's sad. Went to University of Florida. Was an exercise physiology major. Oh, you don't have to be a biology major or a microbiology major. Nope. Major in whatever the heck you want. Any art majors in here? Language majors? Yeah, there's a hand, awesome. Major in whatever you want. Exercise physiology background and uh, didn't get into medical school my first time. Why? My advisor told me, you're not gonna get into medical school, you're a white male. Now, looking at the room, there's a ton of diversity in here, which is awesome. You're a white male. You're not going to get in. Too many white males are applying to medical school. They're accepting less and less and less. I never went back and saw her. <laughs> but that, that also meant I didn't really understand a lot of what I know now. My volunteering in the hospital was standing at the information desk, pointing people to the elevators in the gift shop. It's volunteering in the hospital, right? It's just like being the janitor in the hospital. It works. I didn't know what shadowing was. Heck, I didn't even know what the MCAT was until a few months before I had to take it. Remember, I'm kind of old. The internet, like these iPhones that we have in our pocket, I didn't have back then. And so the information wasn't as readily available. So I blame blame that. So I applied. I got a couple of interviews and didn't get in anywhere made some phone calls, figured out why my application was weak, reapplied, and was ultimately accepted at New York Medical College. Research. It was a long kind of tangent about research. I did some research in college. I enjoyed it a little bit. Not enough to do a bunch of it. I never have published anything. I've never done a poster presentation. None of it. Still got into medical school, still earned my M.D., Still got to see patients. It's not going to hold you back. Should you try it? Sure. If you don't like it, don't do it. And it doesn't have to be research in what a lot of you think is research. Sitting in a lab with a, a micropipette going, do 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 Right? You can do clinical research. You can find a physician to shadow and ask if they're doing any sort of clinical research. Are they studying their patient population? That's research. Anywhere where you are testing a hypothesis, using this scientific method, that's research. I had a student who was a geologist, studied rocks. How boring is that? <laughs> Doesn't move. <laughs> Got into medical school. That was her research, listed as research in her, her application. No other research. You don't need research. It doesn't have to be clinical. Ultimately, at the end of the day, what I hope you take away from my talk, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to check the boxes. You don't have to do everything that you think you have to do that the admissions committees want you to do. They want you to be you. They want you to enjoy who you are and enjoy everything that you are doing because ultimately you are going to be one person in a class of 100 or 200 or 600 if you go to the Caribbean. They big classes down there. And you as an individual will add your diversity, your background, your experiences to that class. They are building a class, a community of students. They are not looking for perfect 4.0, 528 MCAT students. They are looking for people who have diverse experiences. All right, Samantha sitting up here heard me talk in Colorado last year. She was told oh, you love soccer, you should stop doing that to make time for clinical experience and other stuff that that medical schools want more. And I said, baloney. If you love soccer, keep playing soccer. Keep coaching soccer. Guess what coaches are? They're leaders. They're teachers. The experiences that you'll gain from the activities that you want to do and the passion that you will have doing it and the passion that will come out in your extracurriculars in your personal statement in your interviews will far exceed anything if you're doing it just because you think you have to do it. There's nothing you have to do. Can you get into medical school without clinical experience? Absolutely. Can you get into medical school without any shadowing? Absolutely. Can you get into medical school without research? Absolutely. Should you do... Some of them, yes. Because you need to prove to yourself that this is what you want to do, and that's how you do it. I talked to a student a couple months ago, uh, maybe two months ago now. Later on in the application cycle, hadn't had any interviews. Looked at her application, 3.91 GPA, 519 MCAT score, right, 95, 98 percentile MCAT score, 0 interviews 0 because in her personal statement and in her extracurriculars she couldn't vocalize why she wanted to be a physician she hadn't shadowed she didn't get any clinical experience and it's not because her lack of shadowing and her lack of clinical experience it's not because of those things that she didn't get any interviews It's because she lacked those things that she couldn't verbalize or write why it is that she wanted to be a physician. It was all theoretical to her. Maybe mom was a doctor, dad was a doctor, she really liked scrubs or Grey's Anatomy or House or whatever the show of the day is for medicine. They're all fake, by the way. Scrubs is probably one of the best ones. You have to understand why you are doing this. And to do that, you need to put yourself around doctors. You need to put yourself around patients. I've already talked about not needing the best GPA. You don't need the best MCAT score. You need to have a good enough GPA. You need to have a good enough MCAT score so that you can make it to the next step of the journey when you apply. Medical schools will tell you that they don't screen out applications. And some don't, but the majority do. Medical schools get five to ten to 12,000 to 14,000 applications every year. And yeah, to quickly sort and filter, they'll drop students who are below a 3.0 GPA. They'll drop students who are below a 500 MCAT score. They'll set criteria so that they can more easily manage the application process. You have to understand that. And so talking about that student that had 16 Fs, she took extra classes. She had to fix her application to get above certain thresholds so that schools would take a look at her. And if you have to do that, you have to do that. It may take longer than you want. It may cost more money than you want to spend because you have to take more classes. But again, if this is what you want to do, you'll figure it out. Let's talk about the application process for those applying. You have your primary applications that open up in May every year to be accepted for the next year. So if you want to start medical school in 2020, you're applying this year in 2019. If you're a traditional student, non-traditional, just think about that. When do I want to start medical school? I'm applying the year before. What do you need to apply to medical school? You need some letters of recommendations from professors, from a physician sometimes, not from patients. I had a question the other day. Can a patient give me a letter of recommendation? No, don't do that. You need your MCAT score. You don't need it when you apply, but your application won't be complete until your MCAT score is turned in. You need a personal statement. Wrote a book about it. I have a bunch of them downstairs. You can come get them for free. The personal statement is your chance to tell the admissions committee why you want to be a doctor. I'm just one voice in this process and I believe that the personal statement is there to tell the admissions committee why you want to be a doctor, not how great of a doctor you think you're going to be. There are some people out there who would tell you, though, no, this personal statement sucks. You're not selling yourself enough. And I will disagree with them. Why do you want to be a doctor? You need to understand that in your core. You need to understand it. You have to write extracurriculars, your experience descriptions. You have to write about all the things that you're doing. It's kind of like a resume, but in their own weird form. All of the research, all of the clinical experience, all the volunteering, the work that you've done, the hobbies that you have, it's your opportunity to paint the picture about who you are. If you write in your personal statement that you love rural medicine, that you want to be a rural medicine doctor, and I go and look at your extracurricular list and you have no experience in a rural setting, it's one of the hardest words for me to say, rural in a rural setting, if you don't have that experience, then I think that you're just trying to lie to me to get in because you know that there's more of a focus on rural medicine nowadays. Your experiences need to paint the picture of who you are. And yes, that means including hobbies. You can do that. If you were an athlete in college, talk about that. You have your school list. Everybody freaks out about the school list. Everybody wants to know, wants to think that there's a perfect list of schools that if they apply to them, they're going to get in because I've done all my research and these schools match with my GPA and my MCAT and my mission and blah, 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 blah. It doesn't work that way. If it did, the process would be a lot easier and a lot less stressful. Every medical school is looking for something different. Every medical school every year is looking for something different to build that community of students. And so when you're putting together your school list, my advice, ignore the MCAT, ignore the GPA. Where do you want to go? You have to be reasonable. Do you have a 3.0 and a a 500 MCAT? You're probably not going to Harvard. Have to be realistic in the process. Where do you want to go? Do you want to be in D.C. where it's cold and miserable? Although D.C. is an awesome city. If you're from Southern California like I am, it's cold. If you're from SoCal and you've only known, or Hawaii, and if you've only known beautiful weather, don't apply to Buffalo. (laughs) Anybody from Buffalo? Sorry for the hate. It's cold. It's miserable up there. Right? Don't apply to LECOM, Lake Erie. It's cold. Look at other things, class size, location, weather. Is it close to family because you love them? Is it far away from family because you're sick of them? (laughs) Where are your friends going? What kind of curriculum do they have? Medical schools have lots of different curriculums nowadays. I went to a school that had a traditional curriculum. I would have been much happier and would have done much better if I went to a systems-based curriculum. I didn't know the difference. We'll do questions in a minute. I didn't know the difference. Now they have flipped classrooms where you do all the learning by yourself and then you go to the classroom and do all the interaction and ask questions. They have problem-based learning, small group stuff. Understand all these things. Look at all these things. Do some self-reflection to understand what you are going to want. Applying to medical school is a lot about you and the schools fit to you. Not just the question, where are you going to go to school? Anywhere that takes me. <laughs> right, that's what most students say. Anywhere that takes me. Letters of rec, personal statement, extracurriculars, school lists. You submit all that stuff early. Early. This is not applying to college. This is not applying for a scholarship. There is a deadline, but ignore it. The deadline is, in my mind, two months after the application opens. Applications open June 1st, typically, to submit. That's for MD schools, Texas schools, and DO schools. You can submit as soon as you're ready to submit. Medical school admissions at the majority of schools in this country are based on rolling admissions. That means that the sooner your application is submitted, the sooner that your secondary essays are complete, the sooner that your MCAT score original or retake is complete and submitted to the schools, then the sooner your application is reviewed, the sooner you're invited for an interview, and the sooner you get an acceptance. Every day that passes, more students are being verified in the application system. Every day that passes, interview invites are being sent out. Medical schools only have a limited number of days that they interview students. They only have a limited number of people that they can interview each day. It is a precious resource that goes away every day. And every day that you don't submit your application is a day where there are more students in the application cycle and less opportunities for interviews. It sucks, but it's the reality. I once heard, I think it was a YouTube video, I was watching an NIH professor talking to a bunch of pre-med students, and I loved his analogy. He said, applying to medical school is your first medical school test. It's your first test, and it's an open book test. You know everything that's on the test. You know that you have to write a personal statement. You know that you need letters of recommendations. You know that you have to take the MCAT. You know that you have your extracurriculars that you have to write. You know that there are secondary essays that you're going to be writing. And if you are submitting your application in September, in October, you have failed your first medical school test. All you're doing is telling the medical schools that you can't prioritize your time, that you can't organize. Or, that you're just not motivated enough to figure it out. Whatever the reason is, if you're applying late to medical school, you deserve not to get in. Can you get in applying the last day? Sure, it happens. Those students are amazing applicants, though, or have something that just stands out above and beyond everything else. TMDSAS comes out with stats that show that, oh, it's like 85% of students who get interviews, apply by July. You have to apply early. And just being here, just trying to understand this process, listening to me, because I know everything, you're way ahead of the game. Because there are so many students who don't come to conferences, who don't listen to podcasts, who go at it alone, thinking, oh, I'm a great student. I got into my top choice college. I'm going to get into my top choice medical school. It's just, it's the same thing. And it's not. And it shouldn't be. It should be hard. Right? The saying, if it was easy, everybody would do it. I don't want it to be easy. I want it to be hard. I want to make sure that you're in this for the right reasons. So you submit your applications. Then the worst part of the process comes. You wait. You wait. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait. And you finally get that email that says, congratulations, you've been invited for an interview. Select your day. And then you freak out. Because you're like, uh-oh. I, sh- <laughs> I guess I should start preparing for my interviews. You should hopefully be doing that in the interim. Having the confidence that you're going to get interviews. And so start that, that interview process early. Meet with your advisors. Do mock interviews if they hopefully offer them. And prepare. Interviewing is a skill that you can learn, so you need to practice it. Guess what? Wrote a book about it. (laughs) (laughs) Got lots of those ones downstairs too. You go for your interview day, and it's a fun day. You're there having fun. They want to just take care of you, learn who you are, make sure you're not a serial killer, (laughs) that you have some ability to communicate see who you are off of paper, outside of your application. And then you get that acceptance. I remember when I got my acceptance, for some reason, again, remember, this was 2004. So still pretty early on, the internet's still kind of ramping up. So I got a letter in the mail. It went to my mom's house in Colorado. And I was in Boston. And so she, she's on the phone, and she's crying. And I'm like, oh, God, who died? <laughs> That's been my life. And unfortunately, I've had a lot of deaths in the family. So when somebody calls crying, it's usually a death. And this time, she's like, sit down. I have some good news. And so she, she started reading my, uh, my acceptance letter. And the rest is history. And now I'm a podcaster. So I've made everybody happy that I went to medical school. And I don't practice medicine anymore. I was in the Air Force. I did an uh, Air Force HPSP scholarship. So they paid for medical school. I never got to be an orthopod. The Air Force wouldn't let me. I was a flight surgeon, which is not as cool as it sounds. I'm not operating on the airplanes. Those are called mechanics. They operate on airplanes. I don't do anything in the airplane except fly around with them every once in a while, or I did. You're basically like a family practice doc for pilots and load masters and engineers and other stuff. And I had some health issues and the Air Force wouldn't let me fly anymore And I had started my podcast and website to be the the anti-student doctor network, to put some positivity out there, to let you know that you can do this, even if you're not the perfect applicant. And in 2015, I stopped practicing, left the Air Force, and I get to, to travel around the country now and internationally, hopefully in June, I get to go up to Toronto and speak. And just make sure that you guys understand that if this is what you want, that you can do it. It's a lot of work, but all the pieces are out there. You know what you have to do. You just got to put them all together. All right, let's do some Q and A. Sound good? Thank you. You wanna run the mic? All uh, right. Well, that's pretty loud. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I'm gonna skip out of the mic. No, no, no. Use the mic, please. Use the mic. Yeah. Okay. Just hold it further away. Uh, I want to say thank you for coming out. you are yeah. one of the few established physicians that really takes the time to guide us pre-meds. You know, you see a lot of physicians really, you know, emphasizing, you know, uh, teaching the residents and the medical students, but I want to thank you for always guiding us pre-meds. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned letter of recommendations briefly. Mm-hmm. How do you approach, or how would you recommend we approach that? Some people talk about, obviously, even writing a rough draft, maybe coming with a cover letter. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of different approaches. How would you recommend that for us? So, number one, you have to ask, right? So ask who you're going to get a letter from. And if you're early on in this process, I like to set expectations. When you go into your physics class or your biochemistry class and you're like, I've heard this professor writes pretty good letters of recommendations, right? RateMyProfessor.com says he or she's awesome. Set that expectation at the beginning of the class meet with your professor early on and say, hey, Professor Jane, I'm a pre-med student. I'm looking forward to your class. I'm hoping at the end of the semester I do well enough and we uh, have a relationship that I can ask you for a letter of recommendation. And that professor will then hopefully give you some expectations and say, here's what I expect from you if you want a really good letter of recommendation from me. That way you know what's going to happen. That way you, you know that at the end of the semester, hopefully you've done everything that professor wants and you'll get a good letter of recommendation. Instead of after class, after the semester, going, surprise, I need something from you. I want something from you. Okay, so set that expectation. I'm not a fan of doing a lot of work before you know what they want. So ask first, Don't delay asking so that you can perfect your resume, your CV, your whatever, your personal statement. Ask. If they then say, I would love to write one for you, can you get me a draft of your personal statement? Then say, sure, let me get back to you, okay? And just just see what they want because every professor is going to be different. There are going to be professors who are like, yeah, great, write me a draft and give it to me and then I'll tweak it and sign it. Technically, it's against the rules, but a lot of professors do that. And so you have to weigh, do I break the rules a little bit because I need this letter or do I go and find another professor? That's up to you. Yeah, question? Uh,
1: Thank you again for spending
0: your time here with us today. Um, My question is you talked a little bit on curriculum and how you felt that you could have benefited from a different style of curriculum while you were in med school. Is there anything outside of the academic arena that you felt you could have better benefited from or that your school could have offered to you, such as, like, all of us here, obviously, I'm involved with ANZA, and me, personally, I felt that that's helped me in my career, not only with the support system, but just more friends, but keeping me directed in what I should stay um, passionate about while applying to med school. Is there anything that you thought you missed out on that we should probably encourage more as we continue in our undergrad careers? I think... The fact that you're all here and all part of AMSA is already a step in the right direction because you're all collaborating together. If you listen to my podcast, in the first 30 seconds, I say that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. And I wholeheartedly believe it. I agree that you should, or I believe that you should all form study groups and all help each other. Where one person is weak, another is strong. Form those groups. You helping your classmate is not going to hurt your chances of getting into medical school. And so I think if you focus on building that collaboration, building the community of students who you can be around in undergrad and in medical school, then you're already successful. I don't think there's anything that the medical school per se could have done to help me more. It's just understanding who I am and and surrounding myself with other people. Yes. Yeah. Personal statement is why do you want to be a doctor? Who watches TV shows? Who reads fiction books? Who watches movies? Why do we do that? Entertainment, stories. We as humans are drawn to stories. That's how we've learned for 100,000 plus years, right? Before we had written word, we told stories to educate our offspring. Stories, I think, resonate the most in a personal statement. Show the reader. This is very basic writing advice. If you Google show versus tell, that's writing 101. Show the reader what's going on. Don't tell them what's going on. Show the reader what it was like to be there for a patient. And one of the biggest things that students miss out on is reflecting on the experience in their personal statement. Okay, so you told me what you did, or maybe you showed me what you did, but you didn't tell me why it's important to your journey, why it's important to you wanting to be a physician. And if I don't know why you want to be a physician, I'm less inclined to invite you for an interview. You need to show the reader why you want to do this. And you need to reflect on your journey and help them understand why the experiences have really solidified in your mind that this is what you want. Okay? Sure. You pick. I have a booth downstairs in the exhibition hall and I'll be there all day today, a lot of day tomorrow. So come find me, ask questions, I'll be around. Yeah. Hear a lot about the different curriculums that are offered in different schools. Mm-hmm. And one I hear about a lot is the block system. And then you've also mentioned the reverse teaching. And what other models are out there? And um, what are the, what do they actually look like? I have a hard time finding out what the different ones are and what they actually look like. So, how do I know? which ones schools offer, yeah. I have a hard time finding that out. Yeah. So most schools, if they have a somewhat updated website, should have curriculum on there because they know it's an important thing that students are looking for. If you can't find it in a school that you're interested in, just email them or call them and ask. So traditional curriculum is like what you do in, in undergrad. You have a biochemistry class, a histology class, a pharmacology class, an anatomy class, a a physiology class, a pathophysiology class, and you learn it all separate. That's what I went through. And there were some that I just hated because it didn't fit with anything else. And so I didn't know why I was studying it. Right? I wanted to be an orthopod. I just wanted to bang on knees and, and cut people and put people together. Why do I need to learn histology? I don't care what the cell looks like. I'm going to put a screw through it. That's what I thought. It's terrible, terrible thinking now because... It's all important. All of it's just helping you try to learn. So that's traditional curriculum. A systems-based curriculum is one where you learn the cardiovascular system in a block. So you mentioned block, that's what the block is. And so in the cardiovascular block, you learn the anatomy, the histology, the physiology, the pharmacology. You learn everything integrated into the cardiovascular system so that it all fits and makes sense all together. And you don't have to go and relearn it in second year when you're studying pharmacology and go, oh wait, what was the the physiology of the heart again? Because now I'm in pharmacology, but you still need to know the physiology. But that was last year and I forgot it all already, right? So that's block And that's where I think I would have done much better. Some schools will integrate problem-based learning in whatever system they have. And problem-based learning is, is small group settings where you are given a clinical vignette, so the school will either create or buy from a source these long drawn out clinical vignettes of a patient and say this patient is X number of years old and came in with these symptoms and you did this and they did, and this happened and, and together as a team of students, you're sitting there in front of your computers trying to figure out what to do. How do you diagnose this? How do you treat it? What are the complications from the treatment? What happens if you treat with the wrong stuff? What happens if you don't diagnose it properly? And there's a moderator, typically a physician who's there to help if you guys get stuck or to ask questions to help you get unstuck. That's problem-based learning. No matter what system of of learning the school has, a lot of schools are are starting to integrate problem-based learning. The flips classroom I mentioned briefly is, is instead of going to a lecture and watching the professor kill you by PowerPoint... You get to kill yourself by PowerPoint at home, learn the material, and then you use the classroom to interact and ask questions and build upon the knowledge that you're learning yourself. So that's a flipped classroom. It can be either. Yeah, it can be either. All right, I think we're out of time. Thank you guys for coming. Have fun. All right, there you have it. My talk from the AMSA convention. If you are interested in AMSA and learning more about AMSA, reach out to AMSA. They are a great organization. They Their main organization is for medical students, but they do have pre-med chapters. And if you don't have a pre-med chapter at your college, reach out and see what it will take to start one at your college and start a, a chapter at your college and stay tuned for pre-med fest, AMSA has historically done a pre-med fest around October, November every year. It's historically been in Tampa. There are some talks that maybe it'll be in Austin, Texas here in 2019. And then check out the AMSA convention, the annual AMSA convention, which will be in DC in 2020 in April. So hopefully I will see you at a conference coming up soon. I will be uh, just announced I will be in Toronto in June, there's a conference there, the 10th and 11th. It's not for pre-med students. It's more for admissions admissions committees and those members. But uh, I'll have the opportunity to speak to those members, which will be exciting. So if you are in the Toronto area or can make it to Toronto, I'll likely be doing a meetup probably on the 9th, which is a Sunday night to, to make it a little bit easier for everybody to travel in, hopefully uh, working on a Sunday so you can make it to dinner and hang out with an awesome community of pre-med students. All right, that's all I have for you today. Hope you enjoyed a little bit of motivation today for my talk at the AMSA convention 2019. And we will see you next week here on The Pre-Med Years.